This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? You want to see how we get around? Why don't you come visit me? You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Professor Dan Emmergluck, who is a professor in urban studies at Georgia State University in Atlanta. But he's written a book, Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. Welcome to Wage World, Dan. Thank you, Wade. Well, um, I know a little bit about Atlanta, but I know a lot more reading your book. How did you, uh, this was obviously the product of many years of work, Dan. Yeah, I've been in Atlanta going on 18 years. Uh, been working on uh, research, uh, teaching urban studies and urban planning, uh, and doing a lot of applied research and policy work in the city, especially around neighborhoods, housing, community development. And this book really, in some ways, represents uh, 17 years, 18 years uh, of frustration uh, with what I've seen. And to some degree, it's been a catharsis. So while I spent, I've really been gathering uh, information for a long time. And then, you know, a year or two ago, I really decided to put it into the book. Well, and it reflects that Atlanta has, as you've read in the book, has really sort of been boomtown over the last 20 years, 30, 25, 30 years. Um, and that's not something that's working out as well for some folks as others. And uh, that, that's exactly right. It's, it's been a, a story of, of persistent and repeated exclusion of low-income folks, of black folks in particular, also Latinx folks, um, just kind of policy decision after policy decision has favored kind of growth at all costs um, and without consideration to what that means to particularly renters and lower-income families. I saw a thing in the news uh, in some magazine or the Times or whatever recently about um, where people are moving who were younger people. And for uh, Atlanta is the leading city by far uh, for uh, blacks in general, especially black women. So Atlanta is still seen as sort of a beacon in the South, drawing many people, uh, particularly African-Americans, into the city. And that's sort of, uh, that's, this whole sort of coalition between business and the black community that sort of underlies part of your book uh, is something I wish you'd talk about. You look at mayors that uh, go back some time, Andrew Young and a number of others. Uh, how does that all fit into this as, as context? Yeah, um, a number of previous authors have written about the political economy of the city and the region. And uh, they, they've come up with various terms for it, some uh, called the Atlanta style, but what's really persisted is this term, the Atlanta way. 
And the Atlanta Way really uh, epitomizes this this coalition, this governing coalition, sometimes called an urban regime, between the white corporate power structure, and it still is predominantly white, and a growing uh, political uh, black power structure that, you know, really since Maynard Jackson came into the fore in terms of titular governance, meaning, you know, holding the mayor's office, controlling city council, but really being uh, subordinate to this persistent white corporate power structure. And this partnership, this black-white urban regime has benefited, you know, this black power uh, structure, middle and upper income uh, blacks who have participated in that, but it has not benefited lower income black families, especially. And that's been, you know, the bulk of the city's black population. And increasingly, it's a large part of the suburban black population. Uh, you know, Atlanta is a relatively small part of, of the region and blacks are moving into the region, but increasingly they're moving into the suburbs, partly because the city has become so expensive. So there's a, this exclusion has now turned the city as the black Mecca into really a suburban black Mecca because the city is just too expensive. You know, Washington, D.C. for a while had this reputation, call herself the chocolate city. Um, now the population in Washington, D.C., African-American, is a minority population, not a majority population. Is that what's happened to Atlanta as well? Yeah, yeah. In 1990, the city was two-thirds black. Uh, the city is now less than half black, and that that trend has really accelerated since the foreclosure crisis, the boom after the foreclosure crisis in luxury apartment buildings and high-end development in what's called Midtown and near the Atlanta Beltline has drawn in lots of folks into the city, but they are upper-income folks. The jobs that are growing in the city and the real estate development is catered towards folks making over $100,000 a year. I want to get more into the Beltline, but I've got to share with you a story, Dan. When we were out door knocking uh, families who had been victimized by Harbor uh, Portfolio and uh, and Vision Property Management on uh, these sort of rent-to-buy schemes, uh, one of the most interesting and uh, novel experiences I've ever had in uh, doing a home visit was I talked to somebody who was with Harbor and. Uh, he really was excited, wanted to join, excited to talk to me because he wanted me to sort of look at the contract he had um, because he thought, and this was a totally predatory contract, that he might be able to get out and make money to be able to move to one of these suburbs you're talking about, even though it was a rent-to-own situation because the values were going so far up over what he had originally agreed in a very you know, exploitive way to, to pay. Um, yeah. And that was like, you know, here I am, you know, talking about how, what we can do about the fact that you're being taken advantage of. And he's saying, can't you give me advice about how I can like cash in? <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what am I like? I'm, I'm like a real estate advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. The problem yeah. of uh, this beltway, um, I mean, 
when I was also on those same doors, not far from, you know, Abernathy Boulevard and King and whatever, what used to be a, a low-income working low, uh, African-American neighborhood, what they were claiming, what people in these contracts were complaining about was gentrification, a younger black families, professional families coming in. Um, it was crazy. But this Beltline thing, give people a sense of what it was and what it is and what it's doing. It's amazing in terms of its impact on many of the neighborhoods in Atlanta. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, you know, I've studied cities all over the country, too. And I think it's fair to say it may be the most, quote unquote, transformative kind of uh, public-private partnership targeted development project in the country, but transformative in, in some good ways, but in a lot of not so good ways. Um, it is based, it's basically a rails to trails plus proposed transit and, and uh, park development project that rings the core of the city based on a 22 mile ring of old rail lines. Um, that circled the city. And the original vision was that it would connect 45 neighborhoods in the city from wealthy to poor and allow people to travel uh, along this corridor and connect in a very racially and economically divided city back then as well. And this idea came about in the early 2000s but very quickly, um, you know, it was really developed around the idea, the original idea around 2002. Very quickly, the real estate community, the kind of, uh, again, this urban regime, the city uh, kind of took it over as a major public-private partnership. And instead of, for one thing, they didn't focus much on transit, but they also did not pay attention to any potential downsides of this. And they really focused it on the benefits of rising property values and economic development uh, really through rising property values. And in fact, they designed the key financing mechanism, what they thought was the key financing mechanism would be uh, tax increment financing district, which would in fact depend on rising values. What they kind of neglected to say is that the values would rise not just in this district, which is fairly narrow and spindly district around this rail corridor, but many neighborhoods right next to that district. And in fact, I showed as early as 2004, 2005, that speculators were buying up properties and values were skyrocketing before the foreclosure crisis. The crisis came around and deflated that as well as deflating lots of things. But then right after the crisis, starting in 2011, 2012, value started skyrocketing again. And I showed a few years later that values were rising much faster. And this, of course, has a displacement effect, especially for renters. But it also excludes the opportunities for, you know, new low-income residents to move in. And so what you've developed is this engine of gentrification and exclusion that concentrates demand in the city, which was rising because of job growth and Atlanta being red hot, um, concentrates all that interest, especially from 2012 to 
you know, in the next five years, right next to the Beltline. So those values really increased. They were increasing in other parts of the city, but not nearly as fast. And at the same time, the Beltline had made these fairly weak commitments to build a few hundred units of affordable housing, about 300 units a year. But by 2017, they had built almost nothing. Um, and, you know, the director of the Beltline organization got thrown out and they've made better attempts since then. But the problem is, you know, when they should have been the most active to prevent the displacement and the gentrification was before they started building the trails, before they started building the glitzy parks, before they built this behemoth commercial building, uh, Pont City Market that draws lots of tourists. Uh, they should have banked land and provided for, uh, you know, affordable rents before all this happened. And now they're trying to do it now. Uh, and values are so high, it's extremely expensive for them to build affordable housing near the Beltline. Once again, I'll <laughs> I hit one door uh, on a vision property. Um, it was abandoned in terrible shape. And I'm, you know, right there uh, looking at the list and making sure that nobody's still living there. And the guy who owns it shows up. And I had his name. Um, and he turned out to be, I forget, a pharmacist or something. Uh, uh, not, not a white guy, but somebody. And then he starts asking me where else I'm going because... He wants to see if he can buy five or six of these places. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. We're talking. There was, yeah. I interviewed uh, some investors, uh, you know, single family investors during and in the wake of the foreclosure crisis around 2011, 2012 and for a research project. And there were small investors who were just buying as many homes as they could afford near the Beltline. I had this one woman who just bought, they, she bought kind of the worst properties. She paid $10,000 for them, put a coat of paint on them and rented them out um, for, you know, she, she could rent them out for $500 a month and still make a killing when you're only putting 10 or $15,000 into a property. And yeah. And she's like, well, my real money is going to be when the Beltline values come. And she knew it. She said, even if two of these properties out of these 10 that I bought go way up, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a really big killing. And sure, sure enough, she bought in neighborhoods that back then you could buy houses for $15,000, $20,000. Now those same lots are worth a quarter million dollars. Um, so she... I'm been sure she made a killing. In the city and the housing authority and development folks who were buying those properties, so they should have been ahead of this. And I think that's, that's right. We're talking. That's right. They had a huge opportunity. They even had some federal money uh, through the neighborhood stabilization program. And what you know, what they could have done with that is bank those properties, develop them, rent them out, and you know, basically create a long-term stable base of affordable housing. Instead, they pretty much just flipped them to the first buyers that they could, partly because HUD was kind of encouraging that, I'm afraid, um, through that program. They were they were kind of scared to hold on to properties because of HUD supervision. But also, there just wasn't the long-term vision uh, 
we now have the city now has well it's a nonprofit uh Atlanta Land Trust um they had something that they called the land trust collaborative but it wasn't effective and they really didn't get this land trust going until 2018 well by 2018 you know the values were way high so that they're doing good work now, but instead of buying hundreds of properties, they can only afford to buy tens of properties. Um, and, and that just was a huge missed opportunity. Not gonna move the needle. We're talking to Professor Dan Emmergoff, who's a professor of urban studies at Georgia State University, about his book, Red Hot City, Housing Race Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. And this, this sort of real estate collaborative, um, there are a huge number of, of major Fortune 500 uh, corporations that are headquartered now in Atlanta, but the real estate and development industry still has a huge, is still a driver of the economy in city politics, uh, particularly when it comes to housing development, from what I read in your book. It, it sure is. Um, it's It's always been a core part of this city regime, but it's also a key part of state politics. And one thing that I talk about in the book is Atlanta is uh, similar to a number of fast-growing Sunbelt cities in that they're located in states that have conservative legislatures. They're red states still primarily. And, you know, people talk about Georgia as a purple state, but in terms of state politics, it's still a red state. Right. Um, especially the legislature and the legislature really constrains what the governor can do, even if the governor shifts uh, this year. And the and real, I mean, what Atlanta can do as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the legislature is dominated by real estate interests, banks. Uh, many of them are real estate lawyers or do business with real estate firms. Many of them, a majority own, own more than one property, mean they own more than just their own home. Um, so that pretty much means they're investors right there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a state, again, like, like Texas, like Louisiana, where um, real estate is very powerful. It's hard to it's hard to get much done in terms of just local policy, even if you have a more progressive local government. What I say in the book is the, the state seems to believe in local control when it comes to property rights, when it comes to the ability to redevelop low-income neighborhoods and exclude folks and displace folks and give local governments the powers to do that. It believes in local control in terms of exclusionary zoning. But when it comes to local control to pass uh, a rent stabilization law or to pass a fair housing law or to just do something as simple as a rental property registry, uh, there's no local control because the state preempts all those things. And I, I've read what the rights are for tenants, and uh, you know I could summarize it in one sentence: not much. Um, yeah, but, it's uh, one of the worst states for tenants' rights. There's, there's I mean, no doubt. I've just spent a lot of time in Arkansas, and I think it's still 50th. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a race to the bottom, and there are no winners. You mentioned yeah. the. Uh, 2007-2008 uh, Great Recession and the, the fact that Atlanta was, Atlanta, Phoenix, or several other, you know, Sun Belt uh, kinds of cities that were hugely impacted. 
Now, major private equity firms and others brought bought huge transfers these houses, tens of thousands. Um, and you reflect on their impact in Atlanta and uh, Memphis, for example, is a place where they now dominate the market. But this is a huge issue. It should have been, that was an opportunity, as you say, for uh, people looking at more affordable housing, but their their ability to get in there and get many of these sort of uh, mortgage-challenged uh, single-family homes was just amazing. And it's got an impact in Atlanta today, doesn't it, in the metropolitan area? Oh, oh sure. I mean, people, uh, I mean, the New York Times just wrote a op-ed uh, or an opinion piece, how this isn't a big issue. Well, it may not be a big issue in New York yeah, state. Ridiculous. I mean, just amazing. Yeah. But ahead. they say, well, it's only 3% of the market. Real, rental markets aren't national. People don't look for houses across the country. People look for houses in neighborhoods primarily. And there are neighborhoods, especially in suburban parts of the metro, especially in uh, majority black parts of the metro, where these firms own a substantial share of the single-family rental properties to, to the degree that they really have significant market power. Um, and they got that way because, well, a number of things that were, like you said, there were lots of foreclosures. So there's a lot of properties on the market and they're at a scale where it makes sense to these private equity guys to say, hey, we can scoop up hundreds, if not thousands of properties in this region. We can set up a property management system for the region, for the metro. Um, we can pay cash for these properties, which means we have an advantage at the foreclosure auctions um, because you need to pay cash. And they scooped up, you know, starting in 2012, they scooped up tens of thousands of properties. Um, they were also encouraged, though, as I write about in the book, by federal policymakers. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, basically the Federal Reserve and the regulators of Fannie and Freddie were concerned that there was this kind of glut of foreclosed properties on the balance sheets of financial firms, including banks, and that the glut of foreclosed properties was, you know, perhaps harming local neighborhoods, which I think it was. Uh, I think that part was right. Um, but instead of saying, and they actually said this in the paper, well, we have the option of helping, you know, folks buy these homes at low, very low prices, right? This is 2012, so it's the bottom of the market. You can get single family homes in the neighborhood, in suburban communities with, you know, lots of amenities for less than $100,000, sometimes less than $50,000. And they said, well, we could do that. And particularly we could, you know, even think about low wealth families who've been, you know, from groups who've been, were disproportionately hurt by the foreclosure crisis, which by the way, our lack of regulation kind of helped cause. Um, or we can usher in Wall Street capital into what they call REO to rental. REO is just a fancy term for a foreclosed property, but converting these properties, buying them up and renting them out long-term. And they chose to do the latter in the paper. And within weeks, I mean, I talk about how Warren Buffett was talking about, oh, if I could buy 200,000 single family homes, I would. 
but there were that Fed paper showed up in the investor prospectuses of these large firms of saying, we, you know, the Fed has blessed this move, has said it's that there's a real market, and they created what they call an asset class. Well, I was I've been waiting to say that. Anytime private equity calls something an asset class, we're all in trouble. Exactly. That, that, that means they've completely financialized it and taking it and, and, and just juice the capital flowing into that market. You mentioned, uh, Dan, the, the interesting thing about uh, sub, the suburbs and the movement uh, into a number of cities because you can't afford to be in Atlanta. Is this is there anything you're seeing different that is hopeful in some of these suburbs as uh, this uh, migration uh, uh, moves forward or in the book, yeah. it, it didn't look good? Yeah, you know, the book is a, a pretty critical look. I, I do think there is opportunity. I mean, if you go back 40 years, uh, a black family moving into, a, into metro Atlanta could not buy a house in most suburbs. The suburbs were almost, you know, over 90% white. They were highly racialized and discriminatory. There still are such suburbs, and I really focus on the kind of more exclusionary suburbs in the more affluent, whiter parts of the metro in the north. But to the east and to the west and to the south, there are lots of opportunities. And if you look at if you look at a map of where black families buy homes, it's much less concentrated than it would have been 40 years ago. And uh, the downside to that, the, the negative part of that is not that many are moving into the city because they can't afford to buy a house in the city or not in very many neighborhoods. But the upside is there are neighborhoods in Gwinnett County, in Cobb County, that were exclusionary 40, 50 years ago that are very diverse now. So there, I ended, that, up, I ended up seeing more of suburban Metro Atlanta than I'd ever even thought I would following the trail on these uh, rent to own properties. It was all in the areas you're talking about. Very few in Atlanta, really. Yes. Yes. Um, especially I know when you were doing work because uh, Fred had been telling me about it, Fred Brooks. Right. And especially at that time, um, a lot of the foreclosure, you know, the initial foreclosure crisis, 2006, 2007 in Atlanta and like many cities was, was spurred in part by investors in poor neighborhoods, especially black neighborhoods walking away from their properties because they had subprime loans or ulte risky loans. And investors go into foreclosure sooner than homeowners because just an asset to them, it's just a thing to them and they're not connected right to the community. So that's what caused the, the, the surge in foreclosures in the city, on the south side of the city, the west side of the city. But then, of course, the crisis spread, and it spread to the suburbs, into you know working class and middle income neighborhoods in the suburbs, not so much to the wealthy neighborhoods. Um, so yes, by the time um, you know by 2010, a lot of the foreclosure crisis was really occurring in the suburbs. 
we could talk so long about so many of these things. I really wanted to ask you about how, you know, these TIFs are crippling uh, city finance budgets, uh, tax, tax increment. But unfortunately, we don't have forever. And I want you to let people know, Dan, how they can get this book, Red Hot City, because it has applications. I mean, yeah, we're talking a lot about Atlanta. God knows Atlanta is important, but this same situation is in, I mean, I can tell you, Dallas was like this. Little Rock was like this. I mean, I mean, you name a city, um, it's got the same situation. How do people get this book? It's out now. Yes. Uh, com. Um, if you don't remember that, if you put Red Hot City in quotes and um, Atlanta next to it, you will get to the book. Excellent. And is there on that website, if, if people want to continue this conversation or ask you questions or have a comment, uh, can they get a hold of you there? Yes, they can. My email is on that website. Excellent. Well, uh, Dan, good luck with this book. We're talking about Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta. But unfortunately, this is everywhere. Dan, keep working on this. We'll get you back uh, some other time to talk about more of this. We could have gone on. This has been Wade's World for another week, the world where the other half lives. And as we talk about things you've never heard, and as it says no Williams sings, things you've never seen will never forget. Wade's World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation, a progressive force in Evan Change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, we'll have another guest. This is Wade Rafferty from Wade's World. Thank you.